welcome to Season 3 of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories with artists and art professionals on a wide range of topics about life and work. We share ideas on our inspirations and the influences that affect our lives. I sit down with artists and thought leaders across the diaspora to learn more about the things that make them tick, the ideas that they are passionate about, and the ways in which their work seeks to impact our society in a variety of ways. Join us as we continue the journey of sharing the interesting and inspiring stories of some of today's most dynamic artists and art professionals in the industry. Let's go! On this episode, I'm joined by Bethany Collins. Bethany Collins is a multidisciplinary artist whose conceptual practice examines the relationship between race and language. Centering language, its biases, contradictions, and ability to simultaneously forge connections and foster violence. Her works illuminate America's past and offers insight into the development of racial and national identities. Drawing on a wide variety of documents, ranging from the 19th century musical scores to the U.S. Department of Justice reports, she erases, obscures, excerpts, and rewrites portions of text to bring to the fore issues revolving race, power, and histories of violence. Bethany has her first solo show, Undercurrents, at Alexander Gray Associates when we sit down to talk about her latest work. Let's dive into my next episode with Bethany Collins. Bethany Collins, I'm so happy to have you on an episode of Everything is Connected. Really looking forward to chatting with you today. I'm really happy to be here with you. Wonderful. Let's jump right in. So I met you last week for the first time at the opening of your show, Undercurrents, on view at Alexander Gray Associates, and up until December 16th. I'd love to talk to you about your newest show. It's your first solo with the gallery. Can you talk to me a little bit about the works in the show and what you're tackling, what you're working on in this show? Yes. So all of my work is language-based. I've been grappling with epic texts for a while now. The Aeneid, the Odyssey, our national hymns, these are the big texts, the Star Spangled Banner, My Country, Tisiphi. They're the texts that we're supposed to turn to again and again in times of crisis. Each new crisis, we come back to these, the epics. But the epics, like Odysseus, they suck up all the oxygen in the room. And so the work's at the heart of undercurrents, the, the show begins with Antigone. And unlike Odysseus, whose choices lead to the death of all of his men, um, the central act at the heart of Antigone is one of dissent, and a dissent that leads to a very self-contained consequence. It, it is to bury one's kin even at the, the stakes of losing one's life, to care for your family. I also think that the accompanying works in the show are similarly about what do you do in the aftermath of crisis? They are about mourning and ritual. In the aftermath of collapse, how one chooses to respond. Across the gallery from the Antigone Erasure works sit a long suite of classified ads. These are called the Lost Friends series. 
So similarly to Antigone, these two series come from the texts that I'm pulling from are from completely different time periods, different circumstance, different people, but they both happen in the aftermath of civil war. Antigone's descent to bury her brother happens in the aftermath of civil war. The Lost Friends ads are classified ads placed by formerly enslaved people after emancipation all the way up until the 1920s. Heather A. Williams has a really beautiful text about this, the, the ads called, Can You Help Me to Find My People? So every once in a while, someone, a family member will post a one-off ad, a shot into the dark, everything that you can remember about your loved one in a really short public notice, a few inches in length. Then there are people who post every year, annual hoping for reunification. These were posted then in black newspapers across the U.S. And what happens is people start to hear these ads read from the pulpit. The papers were shared. And the more these ads are read, the more the way that people ask, the questions of longing start to repeat over time. So the chorus becomes people repeating these questions. Can you help me to find my people? Will the ministers of the South please read this from your pulpits? I am all alone in the world, or in the case of the works in undercurrents, all of the ads repeat the years they've been separated, years of separation from their kin. But again, what I'm hoping that the show does is to collapse the time between these two series, Antigone and Ancient Greece, and the classified ads, both in the aftermath of war, both are choosing these very monumental acts, which is what I hope the show does but they're self-contained. They are not Odysseus journeying across the entire world. They are very small choices that become monumental in their totality. Yeah. There are other works, but I can stop there. No, that's great. That's a great departure because my next question is really about the way you orient and categorize your works in series and larger bodies of work that speak to a particular idea, but then you're connecting more than one body more than one series in this show. So I have a few questions there. Why do you ground your work and organize it in this way? And in this show, is this the first time you are pairing different series together or is that also a part of your practice? It's often a part of the practice. I start with a theme and then I like to include multiple bodies of work that tend to support the undercurrent of the exhibition. The repetition I start with a problem in the text. There must be some sort of issue within language itself. One of the first works, language-based series I made was around contronyms. So these are words that contain their own opposite meaning. They make no sense. There are 88 in the English language. Quiddity is still my favorite contronym. It is the essence of something and a trifling nothing. So it is your core and also something that matters not. Ravel is a really good one as well. It means to, to simplify and to draw out very linearly. It also means to complicate and jumble it up like Christmas lights. They're words that over time have evolved to contain their own contradictions, contradictory meanings. There's a problem there. So it has to start with a problem. And I find that working in series tends to reveal the way that language shifts over. You can say something multiple times and lose its meaning. You forget the word entirely. You can say something multiple times and it becomes a chant or an incantation. There is something sacred about repetition. 
And I think the series does that as well. Let me show you 12 times and something then will happen at the end. Yes, beautiful. I love that. I'm thinking a lot about the fact that your work is grounded in language and the idea of decoding, deconstructing, reconstructing language. But then I also think about place with regards to some of the text that you're pulling up, when it was created, where it was created, the setting in which a story takes place, and what those histories tell us about the work and about your work and potentially about you. Can you share any of your thoughts or ideas about how place impacts your work, if at all? The situation does, and oftentimes that is place. I often think of a dictionary as an archive of language in a time. So it matters that it's from 1982, and it matters that this text is housed within the titling as the American Heritage Dictionary. All the contextual information matters. It's a clue. It matters that the Odyssey from the 1980s shifts back to this older language, the translations of the Odyssey shift back to this language of citizenship, that being born in a place is not enough to belong to that place. Everything is about the time that it has come from or the land that it has come from. And and most often for me, that's about American identity, national identity, and being from this place. Or sometimes smaller, it might be about being Southern and what that means. Yeah, that's a great segue into my next question. You're originally from Alabama, and it's a part of the country that's played such a critical role in the civil rights movement, but also has such a strong, long, and dark history of violence and racism. Do you think that coming from the South and coming specifically from Alabama impacts your work? Yeah. (laughs) I think it's completely obvious and it struck me immediately, but I think it would be good to hear you riff on it. Yeah. You know, I used to get this question when people would come to the studio when I was in New York at the Studio Museum, and they would read my biography on the outside of the door, and then they would come in and ask, oh, how does it feel to be a Southern artist living in New York? And they did this weird shoulder shrug that made me want to reject the term. I felt very judgy. And so I've never thought of myself as Southern, although my father's family is very much rooted in in the South, in Alabama, and my mother's family has lived all across the South. But when I think of Southern, I think of, I mean, the body I imagine is just not mine. It's not mine. So, but every time I go home, it reminds me of why I'm making that inherent contradictions that must abide one another is very much a lineage of growing up in the South. Inherent contradiction that has to abide one another. Are you mixed race? I am, yeah. So that inherent contradiction very much lives in my body. Everything that I do feels rooted in the American South. So a lot of my work is, it has a performance element to it, but I'll never perform it. I had enough of being on display growing up in the South and our family constantly being observed. I have no desire to put my body back in that position. But the love of language comes from the South. It comes from growing up in the church. It comes from growing up learning to tell stories in a particularly Southern way. You have to take people through the narrative. You have to seduce them with beauty and sometimes humor in order to get to the punchline. 
that hits you in the gut. I love that you said that because I had a conversation with Kalita Rawls a couple of weeks ago. And in our conversation, she was sharing with me that while a lot of the work on the surface, it's very beautiful. Her hyper-realistic images are incredibly beautiful to look at. <clears throat> and so they, they draw you in in that way immediately. But if you begin to peel back the layers, and in this new body of work specifically, that's a response to abortion and the overturning of Roe v. Wade and thinking of what that means, not only for her as a woman, but as a mother raising three young daughters in a society that has told you you don't have choice within your rights for your own body. The conversation <clears throat> veered to the fact that when you're looking at something beautiful, that's not usually all there is. Typically, there's a lot of pain under beauty, and people don't necessarily talk about that, but I'm reminded of that in what you said. There's a seduction that happens at the beginning. There's a way that you entice and lure people into something, and then you know you drop a bomb, metaphorically speaking, and the bomb can here's an idea that's going to challenge the way you think. Here's an idea that's going to upend a belief that you have. <clears throat> Here's an idea that's going to be so far removed from anything that you've ever conceived of that it's going to take you somewhere else. And yeah. I think there's something to be said about understanding human nature, understanding how we are wired as beings, that we need a bit of that coaxing in order to get to the heart of something. You can't always be direct, right? Sometimes in order to be direct, you have to be indirect, and I to look at it from the side. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's, I was working on a body of work around floriography for a while. It's the language of flowers. Mm, beautiful. Very Victorian, 19th century Victorian England thing. So today, a yellow rose would mean let's just be friends. But the Victorians were much more Victorian. <laughs> So the camellia would translate to, my destiny is in your hands. Louisiana, I think, is the their official state flower is the iris. It means, I am your captive. And Delaware is the peach blossom. I burn for you. And what I liked about that is the work involved translating the official state flowers of the American South and creating a flocked wallpaper. But those translations are beautiful. They're also intrinsically violent and they're not one without the other. And that's the American South. It's really beautiful and it's home. Its history is incredibly violent and it is the history of the rest of the United States. You don't have one without the other. It is writ, writ large on the landscape. Both. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting because I'd like to go back and pull back the curtain on some of the things that really brought you to creating in this way to begin with. As somebody who has an affinity for language and the power that words have to communicate, but also understanding how limiting they are and how there are so many things that I experience. As somebody who talks to people for a living, essentially, there are so many times where I realize the words that I have at my disposal can't fully articulate the feelings that I have in my heart. And that sense that you maybe are not able to connect with someone is, is also, I think, indicative of the human experience. And you use language to, to try to cover that ground, even when you cannot. I'm really curious to know what led you down this path and, and how did you arrive to have language as the centerpiece of your medium, your materiality, if, if not a better word? 
There are parts of why I love language that feel I rarely share. Like as soon as we turn the Zoom off, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> because if I share them, then I won't have reason to make the work anymore. But there's another, the, the first time that language entered my practice, the first time I played with it was in grad school. And I was making work about race and identity. The critiques I was getting were much more about my peer group trying to understand something about my racial identity or how to talk about race, much more than they were about my work. So I made a paper bag piece. It was about colorism. And the critique I got was, well, maybe if you make it into a slave ship, I'll get that it's about race. It's not a good idea. Or, uh, you know, I just don't see race, so I can't critique this work. Or don't you think your work is a little elitist because I don't know that history? So I started to write that language over and over again. There are questions over and over again to feel, figure out how I should respond to it next time. For the next time. And I wrote those in chalkboards. So remember, they don't do this anymore, the young people. But you would like write it across the chalkboard until you learned your lesson. The chalkboard holds like the history of everything that's been written upon it. It's a beautiful surface. So I would erase that, wash the board, and then write those questions again, but in these tiny letters, deconstructing letter by letter the question. And then I would call it white noise and make fun of the speaker. And I would transform something that started as a problem in the text into, I mean, by my hand, they became more beautiful. They're, they're this other thing. There's also lots of residue and like every... That's the first language-based thing that I made, and every thread of how I approach my practice now is still in there. It is repetition. It is obsession. In order not to veer into madness, it makes it into, rather into beauty. The residue remains because you never get rid of language. It remains. Everything that was there is still in this work. It's just that my, my sources are less personal now. I got tired of talking about biography. So my sources are more collective and national. They're still very much about me. It is all about me, but the, the text is, is collective. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of elitism and the understanding that sometimes language and texts can be elitist because while the story and the concept can be very approachable for the average person to understand, Maybe the format that they're reading it or digesting it or consuming it in may not be something that they're used to. And I think I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how you consider the average person coming into a show or an exhibition and being able to access and actually understand your work. And does that is it something that you that that you think about at all or yeah, any thoughts there? I try not to. Most of the work that has come after 2016 has been about grappling with the end of a world, you know, that familiar but unexpected betrayal. And that is my own like grappling. I turn to the Odyssey for that moment when Odysseus finally reaches his homeland. You know, like we've read the whole thing. It's 10 years at war, 10 years weeping on every wrong shore he lands upon, especially the male translators. It's a very wordy text. He finally gets home, looks around, and doesn't recognize the place. And so my my grappling with the Odyssey, erasing translations in order to get to that moment when Odysseus does not recognize the place he has longed for, his home, 
was about my turmoil post-2016. Into the world, I think that the work, what goes with the work is the beauty of it, the materiality of it, that it is physical. These are the things I hope seduce and like draw the viewer in, but, but I can't, I don't think about people when I make the work at all. You know, I think that I've definitely spoken to a whole camp of artists who teeter both sides of this line. Yeah. Right. And some artists are very much like my audience or an audience is not even, it doesn't even enter my frame of reference. And other people are very clear that like they care about who's seeing and what they're seeing. But I wonder if, you know, and this is, this is just a thought, but I wonder if people who could easily resonate with the story that you're telling may have a difficult time understanding it if they don't, if they're not so well-versed or familiar with looking at work that's like yours. Because I think what ends up happening is that it can feel conceptual when maybe it's not conceptual at all, right? And so I think, no, please. You know, I think what I realized recently, so when we were little, we grew up in um, first in an evangelical church. I'm not a religious person, but the tentacles of language, part of it comes from here. First evangelical and then Presbyterian. The evangelicals, evangelicals, they demonstrate faith in the body. Like it's not faith until you show it, Mm. you express it. Presbyterians are much more, they're all about the intellectual grappling with the word. So you're making sense of it. You're wrestling with the text intellectually, academically. It's all in the mind. It's very different. Those are very two very different appreciations of language. Belief and faith, but for me, let's just say language. And I think in the work that it's actually, I'm trying to do both things. That you could come at this two ways. You could it's about expression and feeling it. And then it's also conceptual and it's about grappling with these historic texts. But they're both, they don't, they don't live. I think in my body both are required. They don't live in isolation. Love that. Considering where we are in the country where critical race theory is being contested in schools and books are being banned at the public school level. It seems like the idea of language and history is more important than ever. In your opinion, is your work timely and relevant to where we are in society right now? It's about me in this moment. I'm trying to grapple with this moment, yes. But I'm also, you know, what I found is sometimes a discouragement and sometimes a comfort in knowing we have been here before. We're going to do this again. It's an incredible disappointment. Also, there are ways out of it. We have stepped out of this before. It is possible that we could get out of this again. And so looking back through time at these historic texts in the archive, they do both of that for me. There was also, I mention this often because it still provides a balm for me. There was a Teju Cole interview with Krista Tippett he did a few years ago. He talked about leaving behind the credo belief of his childhood. The spirit and religion of his childhood is gone. But what he still needs and what all of humanity needs are our essential texts, the ones that have been boiled down to their most quintessential forms. So sometimes that's spiritual. Sometimes those are religious texts. Often they are literature and they are poetry. They are Homer and the Odyssey. 
I agree. <laughs> Where I find the most help is in the texts that are supposed to represent us all and finding the the balm in them, but also revealing the the error in their collectivity, kind of making space within them for for myself mm. and then maybe for, for more as well for others. Beautiful. I love that. And a last question to round out the episode. Sometimes I like to ask this. I don't ask it at every show, but sometimes I like to ask, so what do you like doing when you're not making art? <laughs> I need more hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just cleared out. I cut back my sage bush, Ooh. and um, I cleared out the garden today. I really enjoy that. I do. Any okay. maintenance around the house, I'm always into that. Anything else that you really enjoy when you when you got some oh, free time? <laughs> I learned I during the pandemic. There's a there's a bakery in Detroit that is amazing. It's called Sister Pie. Mm, Sister Pie. Pie. You would think it's run by black people. It's not, but it's really great. And I mastered their pie crust. Really? I, yeah, but I also gained weight during the pandemic, <laughs> so I had to bake for other people. <laughs> oh, okay. when I can give it away. <laughs> but I'm really good at it. I love that you find joy in things at home and cooking and all of these things. I, I feel like at home. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, what is life without that peace at home? Like nothing, you know? <laughs> I set up my guest room, but I have yet to invite people to my guest room because oh, it looks so nice. And you it's don't just... want to mess it up with a guest. You're like, actually. <laughs> My that, sister has been asking. That's hilarious. I love it. I love it. Well, Bethany, this has been a really, really wonderful episode. Thank you for sharing more with me about your practice and illuminating me to the things that ground your work and the ideas that you're passionate about. Your show on right now at Alexander Gray Associates Undercurrents is phenomenal. And everyone listening, go and see this show. It's up until December 16th. It's a knockout show, and I can't wait for you all to see it. Thank you again so much, Bethany. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was my episode with Bethany Collins. I want to give a big thank you and a big shout out to Bethany for joining me on the show. And it's a wrap, folks. That was our episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected. Conversations on culture and current events with some of today's hottest creative contemporaries. These episodes are recorded wherever in the world that I find myself. May that be New York, LA, Miami, the continent, the Caribbean, Europe. Wherever it is that I find myself, I sit down with folks who are thought leaders, critical thinkers, and interested parties within the arts and beyond. These episodes reflect the times that we're living in while also adding some commentary to the social, cultural, and political issues of our world. Depending on where I am in the world at the time of our recordings, you will hear the sights and the sounds of our local environment throughout the U.S., West Africa, and beyond. I'm your host, Falashadi Logandudu, and we'll see you next time. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out.